0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And I'm coming to you from Minnesota where we are nearing the end, I think, of an epic cold streak. We've gone for two weeks with temperatures that sometimes have gone for several days at a time without getting above zero. And when the high temperature has gotten above zero, it has crept up to like two. And so we've you know, we've had we've had days here when the high temperature is three degrees below zero they five degrees below zero, and the low temperature is 22 degrees below zero. It's not record-setting. Uh, we've had cold weather in Minnesota before. And, and by the way, there's 200 miles of Minnesota that's north of where I'm coming to you from. It's been even colder up there. Uh, but this is pretty epic. This is a, this is a legitimate uh, cold snap. But, of course, what's made the news is not cold weather in Minnesota. It is cold weather in Texas and other places in the Deep South where it's really foreign to them. I've got a daughter who lives in Austin, Texas, and she and her husband have not had power for a couple of days. And, and now the word is it's going to be a couple days more before the power goes on. I just heard on the news that so far about 20 people have died with their deaths being attributable to um, to the power outage in Texas. There have also been outages uh, in Missouri and 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 some other states, and why that is, why it is that that uh, America is now starting to experience uh, uh, blackouts, is a really important topic, uh, and you could you could talk about it a lot. I mean, California is the state where over the last couple of years they've had extensive rolling blackouts. So Why is that? And and now in Texas we've got millions of people uh, without electricity, which. Which can be life-threatening. And certainly if you're in a northern climate, like uh, here in Minnesota, it absolutely is life-threatening if you don't have access to, uh, to, to power. So, so th- there, are, there are multiple reasons uh, why we're seeing blackouts re-emerging now as a, as a factor in American life. But I want to talk just a little bit about one theory that, that's not the right theory, okay? <laughs> it's not the right theory. If we have time, we'll get to, we'll get to what's the right answer. But, but the wrong answer appeared in, uh, in the uh, New York Times. And, and um, th- here's the headline in, in, uh, in today's New York, New York Times. A glimpse of America's future, climate change means trouble for power grids. And so, and so this article um, uh, it, its kind of amazing. A global warming, what can't it do? Apparently, global warming can cause pretty much anything, including record cold temperatures in places like Texas. And, um, and, and of course, the thing about these, these, these global warming fanatics is that their predictions are always wrong. And but they feel totally free to change their minds. So, so now they tell us that when there are bitter cold temperatures, oh, that's global warming too. And somebody made up some theory about how it has to do with the polar vortex and whether it comes down from the Arctic. And this is just totally made up. I mean, there is zero evidence to support any such speculation. They just make this stuff up. And uh, I, I would be a lot more impressed if the global. Warming folks uh, could make a prediction before something happens, instead of making up some fake explanation after, after the fact. And and so, if you read this article in the New York Times, which is um, is by a guy, what's what's his name? I can't even find here the name of the of the author. But but if you if you if you read the piece. What he talks about to try to slide over the fact that it's kind of absurd to say that global warming is causing global cooling, and by the way, it's been cold, I think, over the entire northern hemisphere. I know they've had some uh, some uh, major uh, cold and and, and snowfalls in, in northern Europe as well. But 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 the the sort of weasel language that they use to 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 try to somehow extend the global warming theory based on carbon dioxide emissions to, to cold temperatures is by talking about extreme weather events. And, and you see that here in, the, uh, in, in today's New York Times. And, and, um, and, and the problem with, with, with this sort of vague reference to extreme weather events, and by the way, this is why they changed uh, global warming to uh, climate change. Because global warming committed them to warm temperatures, warmer temperatures. Whereas climate change you can use for anything. Anything you don't like. You know, if it's sunny and seventy two degrees, well that's not climate change. You know, but if it if it if there's a storm or you know, if it gets real warm or if it gets real cold, you know, and name it, um, you know, that is uh that's that's climate change. And 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 so um you know, when pressed, they will say, well, it's, a, it's, it's the growing number of extreme weather events of all kinds. And the problem is that just isn't true. I mean, it just isn't true that there has been any increase in extreme weather events, however defined. Uh, you know, hurricanes, there has not been any increase in the frequency of hurricanes. There has not been any increase in the frequency of severe hurricanes. There has not been any increase in tornadoes. In fact, tornadoes have become less common uh, in recent years, there are not more floods than there used to be. There are not more wildfires than there used to be. <laughs> the, the, the place that has trouble with wildfires is California. and That's because of their lousy forest management. But globally, no. I mean, it, it is simply isn't true that uh, there is any, any increase in extreme weather events. And And if you look at a map that shows for each state the highest temperature ever recorded in that state, very few of them are recent. The vast majority are are from from many decades ago. Uh, it simply isn't true that the fact that it gets to be 105 somewhere, you know, constitutes some kind of an extraordinary event. And likewise, the fact that it gets to be 20 below somewhere like here in Minnesota is is not, you know, it, it may be extreme, but it, there's nothing unprecedented about it. And yet. It's really remarkable to me because these data are freely available. I mean, for example, if you want to know about hurricanes and tornadoes uh, in North America, uh, you, you just go to NOAA. Uh, you know, they've got all that stuff. They've got it in charts. You can just look at the charts. If, if you just Google, uh, you know, frequency of of hurricanes or frequency of tornadoes or whatever, it's not very difficult to find those data. And and what you'll find is that there has not been any increase in any of these these kinds of um, of extreme uh, weather events, and yet we see we see in publications like the New York Times, which is a daily font of misinformation, we see people just casually asserting as a fact that there are these uh, there are increased numbers of extreme weather events um, as a result of global warming. Or or uh, or or call it climate change. Although, by the way, if you ask one of these people about climate change, you say, "Well, exactly, how is the climate changing?" The answer is, it's getting warmer, right? So, so there's not a big uh, gap between between the old term uh, global warming and the newer term uh, climate change because the change, ostensibly, of course, is you know is getting warmer. So, so my point is that despite the fact that it's it's very easy to track down information about extreme weather events and 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 verify the fact that no, there has not been any increase. There is no in, ongoing increase in, in such weather events. Nevertheless, in publications like the New York Times, uh, people will just assert uh, with with no support, no reference, no data, no facts. Will just assert. That 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 there's this, this this great increase, you know, not a slight increase, but this this enormous increase in, in uh, extreme weather events, and 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 they'll use that to sweep in everything from a heat wave to a flood, to uh, record low temperatures in in Texas. It's completely uh, completely dishonest. What actually has caused the uh, the blackouts in Texas is a couple of things. One, they really weren't prepared for cold temperatures. What they prepare for is hot temperatures. That's normally what stresses their electrical grid. Number two, they foolishly have relied on a considerable number of wind turbines, and they don't work when it gets cold. And number three, their natural gas infrastructure, that's where they get most of their electricity, their natural gas infrastructure was not well hardened against low temperatures and they had a bunch of uh, pipeline failures and that was that was a huge huge factor whereas in a state like minnesota we we burn a lot of natural gas and we, and we use natural gas pipelines but cold weather is expected and that infrastructure is hardened against against cold so that's basically what, what, what has led to the, uh, the problems in Texas, and it's got uh, certainly nothing to do with, uh, with global warming. But these uh, these people on the left, uh, as the saying goes, they don't embarrass easy. And and with a straight face, uh, they will tell us that uh, record cold temperatures and resulting electricity blackouts are caused by none other than global warming. We'll be back with more after these messages.
0: and sharpen your pencils class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft show
2: welcome back to the Dan Proft show I'm John Hinderocker from powerline filling in for Dan tonight And we are joined now by Jeet here, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine. Jeet, thanks for being on the program. Good to be here. Jeet, I'm guessing that there's not a lot of things that you and I would agree on. But one thing we do agree on is the point that you made in a recent piece at The Nation. The headline is, Republicans have the Biden presidency caught in a unity trap. And and I, I would say the fundamental point that you make here is that this whole idea of unity, you know, as the goal of politics is largely bogus.
3: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, to qualify a little bit, like I think it can be uh, successful as sort of political rhetoric. Like, I think there are a lot of voters out there that like to hear about unity. Uh, But on a fundamental level, like the whole point of politics is dispute, right? Like, it's like you have a community of polity and people have different views of where it should go and what should be done and they have to you know like uh fight it out they have to like uh, argue it out and uh, have elections and and try to persuade each other but, but but it is not politics by definition is not about unity unless you're talking about a totalitarian state
2: yeah politics is a theater of conflict and if people didn't disagree about something it wouldn't be a political
3: issue that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and 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 conflict. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, uh, normal people. I mean, I think about a, a cousin of mine who's an accountant and she doesn't like politics, she says, because they're always fighting. But I mean, that's like and uh, but I mean, that's also understandable. But that is what politics is like. It is where people uh, kind of fight it out. So in that sense, unity rhetoric um, it was kind of designed to appeal to people like my cousin, but it is um, uh, I think we have to just take it as rhetoric. like I do think there's a reason why there's you know two parties in America and many other countries have like many parties, right? Because people disagree.
2: Well, and if you look at history uh, the political history of this country or any other, things that are hot issues at one time uh, are not issues at all fifty years later. Uh, they're no, they're no, not no, matters right, about yeah. which uh, there issues because people are disagreeing about them and consider them to be mm-hmm. important. 50 years later, yeah. the consensus has been reached. There's no real disagreement. It's no longer a, a political issue, and people have moved on to resolving other matters about which people now do disagree.
3: That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I want to also say something further, which I think people don't understand or appreciate, but this whole emphasis on bipartisanship and unity actually creates an incentive. For uh, polarization, a reaction of polarization, and one sees this like in the sort of early republic, where like um, uh, President Monroe created this era of good f- feelings, where he brought in people from all over the spectrum and across the country for unity. But that, like, a lot of people saw that as like creating a um, an elite that doesn't care about the common people, and that led to Andrew Jackson and the sort of, you know, populism that he embodied. Uh, And one saw it again in the sort of 1950s, where Eisenhower had this, you know, very deliberate middle-of-the-road policy. And that created a reaction on both the left and the right, where you had kind of civil rights people saying, well, that's, you're not going far enough for us. And you also had people on the right uh, like the early National Review and the John Birch Society in Goldwater, who said, well, no, this is, um, Eisenhower uh, has betrayed the Republicans. He's not dealing with Social Security. He's not rolling back communism. So, so again, I, I sort of see, you know, unity talk almost by its nature tends to provoke people um, uh, to push against it and, and encourages polarization.
2: Now, you make a point in your piece uh, that maybe is a little bit different from a point I would make, but let's talk about it. Uh, One of the things you argue is that this talk about unity, bringing the country together, et cetera, by Joe Biden and members of his administration is kind of playing into the hands of Republicans and is really empowering
3: them in a way that Biden shouldn't intend. Yeah, no, I I do think that that's kind of like a danger where like, you know, um, if he uh, if he talks about unity so much that Republicans can kind of, you know, obstruct stuff and say, well, we don't agree with it. So it's anti-unity. So anything, Um, and we do see that. I mean, I do think that we've seen Republicans use the unity language against Biden. Uh, But but having said that, I mean, like Biden himself has also tried to redefine unity as not unity with uh, bipartisanship of Republicans and Democrats, but unity of what polls well. So he can say, well, you know, 80% of the population wants a stimulus check. So like that's unity. So so we're seeing kind of very interesting battle of defining what is unity. And I think the Republicans are really emphasizing the old sort of bipartisan idea that say, well, if you can't get both parties on board, it's um, uh, you're dividing the country. And I think Biden, you know, having been caught in that unity trap is trying to work around it.
2: We're talking with Jeet here of The Nation magazine. Jeet, let's broaden the conversation just a little bit. One of the things that we've all heard, just ad nauseum, you know, in recent years is is people talking and com- usually complaining about the fact that we are so polarized. Uh, mm. You know, America's gotten so polarized, you know, uh, it's, it's extreme or it's, 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 it's too partisan or it's too aggressive, you know. And I think there's some truth to that, um, but, but how does that fit into the general view that you and I both share, which is, you know, that's what politics is for, is to resolve the very matters about which, uh, you know, pe- pe- people don't agree?
3: Yeah, I, I, mean, I think some of the polarization stuff is actually a, a genuine concern about the fact that the American political system doesn't map on very well uh With these types of these periods of uh increased disagreement uh where it's on on parties and I think in the olden days you had sort of liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, and you could create these sort of cross patch alliances but once you have very polarized political parties and you have something like the senate uh which um uh, has a lot of veto points and has a, and the American political system as a whole has a lot of veto points, but you kind of get is gridlock and I think that that is a kind of concern. We don't they um we uh which we've seen over you know, I um administrations of both parties for a long time. I mean, the only place that presidents can really get stuff done is foreign policy, which is why, like, you know, like Bush was able to invade like Iraq. But you in, in domestic policy, I think America has had gridlock for, you know, pretty much this um, you know, the twenty first century. Uh and that that's a problem. I think that's something that one has to think about and work around, but um, uh, but I mean again, the oh, issue I think if I what... could
2: just interrupt for a second, Gene, I, I agree with you there, and I, it seems to me that our whole our constitutional system is set up so that it's hard to get things done unless there's consensus. Because, as you say, mm-hmm. there's a lot of ve- there's a lot of veto points, there's a lot of reasons why something doesn't happen, and for things mm-hmm. to happen, there's got to be pretty good consensus under our system. And so, I think part of what we're seeing here is is where you haven't got that consensus, people get increasingly frustrated because they don't see movement in either direction.
3: Yeah, no, that's right, that's right. Yeah, and I I think that is a genuine issue, and where we might disagree is, I I mean, my thinking on this is that I think it's actually kind of, you might want to get rid of some of these veto points uh, uh, and, you know, like just have a uh, a more... uh, direct policy so that, like, when Republicans are in charge, they can get their policies, and when Democrats are, they can, and and the voters can decide. But, uh, I mean, that, that's a very hard thing to do. I mean, we see with, you know, the filibuster. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I mean, like, I do think that this issue of gridlock kind of um, has to be dealt with. Gee, dealt I, think with a
2: a, I think that's a great point. Uh, we're up against a hard break. We have to leave it there. We've been talking with Jeet here of The Nation magazine. Jeet, thanks for being on the show.
3: Oh, it is a really good to talk.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Jim Pinkerton, former White House aide under President Reagan and the first President uh, Bush, and news contributor and contrib- contributor to the American Conservative and Breitbart.com. Jim, thanks for being on the program. Thank you, Graham. Jim, I want to start by talking about a piece that you've got at, at Breitbart. Um, the headline is, Democrats Wrestle with How to Quit... And acquitted Trump, and, and basically the Democrats have been addicted for the last four years to Trump hatred, and uh, and, and they can't let go. What, what what's going on?
4: Uh, well, I mean, I, I I borrowed that headline with full credit, of course, from Politico, which that was literally their headline, and I thought it was funny that a mainstream media publication would be so you know accurate as to. Uh, democratic motivation, which is to say that, you know, hating on Donald Trump has been good business for Democrats and of course the media. They both kind of admit it. Uh the challenge now is that hating on Trump is still good business for the media, which is why they always want to cover him. And the Democrats of course now have a problem. This is they're in charge and so they want attention to go to Joe Biden and Joe Biden's, you know, agenda. And that nobody's quite given this memo to the MSM yet that, no, hey, guys, cover Biden and how great he is, not Trump and how terrible he is. That's a message that the Democrat coalition is going to have to sort out among itself.
2: You know, Jim, I think it's really extraordinary that we had this incoming administration. And uh, normally they want to forget all about the guys that lost. You know, what's the point of talking about them? And they want the news to be all about their plans, you know. And instead, we had this spectacle of, of, the, of the post, you know, the out of office impeachment. I just thought it was extraordinary that the Democrats thought it made sense to have the focus on, on, the, on, on Trump as opposed to Biden. Yeah, I mean, Biden will be on the ballot.
4: Uh, or the Democrat, you know, and, and the Democrats will in, in 2022, and so on. I, uh, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi saying that she wants to have a you know January 6th commission in the spirit of the you know, 9/11 commission of a couple decades ago, uh, only guarantees. So, you know, if you were a assignment editor at CNN and you had a chance to, you know, cover. You know, the the use the, all you know, the video footage of those idiots on January 6th in the Capitol, or, you know, the Agriculture Secretary Gilsack talking about the new farm bill, which would you choose? I mean, that's, you know, it's so loaded in the favor of the sensational Trump news that even just this morning in the Washington Post, Eugene Robinson, who's a liberal stalwart at, at that newspaper, his headline was quote, let's leave the 45th president behind and focus on what's ahead. that's an op-ed writer talking. Meanwhile, of course, you know, the Washington Post is still just as obsessed with Trump as are (laughs) all the rest of the MSM. So they've got to figure this out.
2: You know, one aspect of this strikes me as quite sinister, Jim. And this is something that you talk about in your piece, referring to what's being reported in, in Politico, and that is that the Democrats are working on a, quote, roadmap to deal with Trump after the impeachment trial, which could include trying to obtain his financial records, uh, trying to revoke his, quote, post-presidential privileges, um, et-, et cetera. And uh, I, I, I find this kind of scary, the idea that um, they're going to continue to, to pursue uh, President Trump as a private citizen. What, what do you make of that?
4: Well, it is interesting, and, and it has a certain edge to it, as, as you indicate. But also, as I pointed out in that piece, Joe Biden is going to have to think about this a little bit. Now, wait a second. Do I really want a bunch of disclosure rules and so on and so on about nepotism and family and influence and money and so on? I mean, though, you know, Trump, for, for better or worse, is going to get, you know, flayed. By you know half a dozen different prosecutors from New York to Atlanta, and so any financial secrets that he has, I suspect, will come out in a subpoena or a court trial. You know, within the next you know year or two, uh, you know, Joe Biden is if he, if he wants that kind of treatment. This, if they mandate disclosure, if they mandate you can't do this, you can't do that, uh, you know, this, this stuff will have to apply to the 46th president just as much as the 45th president. So we'll, I think we'll see a little bit of behind the scenes, hey guys let's just kind of cool it on this revenge stuff.
2: Well, we don't want to go down the path of a place like Israel where if you lose the election, there's a good likelihood you get indicted, you know. <laughs> uh, being a former politician is, is, is a way of trying, you know, you find yourself having to try to stay out of jail. I don't think that's a precedent that we want to follow. follow. Here, we are talking.
4: Biden's looking forward to. Oh, yeah. 100
2: Bidens. Yeah, Right, right. We are talking with Jim Pinkerton, and we're going to be back with more after these messages.
0: Oh, no, we're going to rock down to
2: Electric Avenue, and then we'll take it
0: higher. Oh. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This, 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 this is the Dan Proft Show. Oh.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm John Hinderocker filling in for Dan tonight. And we are talking with Jim Pinkerton. And Jim, I want to change gears now and talk about something different. And that's Stacey Abrams. You know, I don't think I'd ever really heard of Stacey Abrams until she ran for governor of Georgia and lost. And then the next thing I knew about Stacey Abrams was that she kept claiming she'd actually won. And at least in my circles, you know, she was viewed as kind of a laughingstock. But but now I hear some people saying she's actually the most powerful politician in America, and uh, talk about that a little bit. You've got a piece uh, at, uh, at at Breitbart. Um, uh, it's t- it's headline: Stacey Abrams outlines her plan for Democratic domination. So, what's the Republican plan?
4: Well, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, you know, look, you're exactly right. When she ran for governor in '18, she ran a you know a strong campaign. She lost by fifty thousand votes in 18 and then she refused to concede and that made her kind of a figure of fun among republicans you know calling her quote governor abrams unquote and so on and but then you know instead of just settling back to become a laughing stock she you know put her nose down and and got to work and continued what has driven her Uh, for the last decade or more, which is registering voters. And this is something that Republicans have to come to grips with. In the last 10 years, the number of registered voters in Georgia has risen from 6.6 million to 7.6 million. That's about a 17% increase. And Abram says that of that million new voters, 800,000 are thanks to her. Again, we can Analyze those numbers, and maybe she's right, maybe she's wrong. But the the one million vote voter increase in registration surge it is undeniable, and that explains why I think why Trump and and uh, pre- former President Trump and former Senator Leffler and former Senator Perdue uh, all lost in Georgia. The turnout the Democrats engineered was on the order of you know. from 16 to 20, Uh, and and those were, you know, the numbers show those were new Democratic voters, and Abrams did something really sort of profound and obvious at the same time, which is win campaigns by getting more votes than the other guy, and the key to that is to get him registered and motivated in the first place, and that's what she's been doing. Meanwhile, what have Republicans been doing? They've been tweeting. And that's not a plan for victory.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the things, as I understand it, you correct me if I'm wrong here, Jim, but as I understand it, um, uh, one of the things that Stacey Abrams did was she she was putting a lot of pressure on the Georgia Secretary of State. And one of the things that she got was that they put up these ballot boxes, uh, untended boxes, but only in heavily Democratic areas. They didn't put them up everywhere. They put them up in, I think, in the city of Atlanta, maybe some other places, and and anybody any time of the day or night could come by and drop in ballots. And two questions: Number one, am I saying that right? And two, you know, to me that just seems like a, a recipe for voting uh, irregularities. Or do you think that's too uh, too cynical?
4: No, I think those are those are vote true statements. But it's important to understand that the legal agreement that was hammered out between Abrams and her various groups would call like, names like Fair Vote and so on. And the Georgia Secretary of State was achieved—that's if that's the right word—signed in April, almost almost a year ago. Where you know, there's a- any point that Republicans wanted to make about you know vote ballot harvesting and vote boxes left unattended and so on, should have been made in April, not. In November and December, I mean, look, this is a clear case where Abrams and you should should also, your your listeners should be aware of an incredibly smart and effective Democratic lawyer named Mark Elias at the law firm of Perkins Coy, uh, who has been along with a bunch of other smart Democratic lawyers has been doing all this maneuvering and Republicans, frankly, haven't been paying attention to all, all these agreements. I mean, our lawyers are people like, unfortunately, like Sidney Powell and you know, Lynn Wood and Rudy Giuliani who were, who were like worse than ineffective. And you wonder why we lose when they outlawyer us. Anybody who's in the legal game knows that the, the merits of a case are oftentimes less important than the quality of the lawyering that goes into it. And so Republicans have to learn to play that game And find our own smart lawyers who can go toe to toe or at least call attention to at the time when these kinds of terrible agreements are reached.
2: Yeah, um, I, I wrote a piece on on Powerline recently. Why can't Trump find a good lawyer? <laughs> that's a, that's a story <laughs> in it's, that's a story in itself, Jim. But but you know what I'm talking about. So so let's let, let's go to the next step, though, as you do in your in your piece, Jim. I mean, let let's let's say, okay, hats off to the Democrats for being smart, being tough, being effective. But instead of complaining, let's learn from it. So so what what exactly can Republicans do here to fight fire with fire?
4: Well, I, I think one thing we have to realize is that too much of the conservative media, and this includes blogs, this includes talk radio, is oriented towards heating up the Republican base, as opposed to actually getting to vote. I mean, if you can somebody can sit at home and watch Sean Hannity all night and you know get really good mad at liberals, but that is not automatic, as I wrote in the, the Breitbart piece that he or she will vote. I mean, again, these idiots who stormed the Capitol in, in, in last month in January, that they've done studies of them. Most of them didn't vote. And it's crazy that they were, they were obviously more interested in rioting than voting. Okay, so we lost the election in November and another election in January, and then we lost again when these clowns, you know, smeared the Republican Party. I mean, what we need is a, a media system where it says, look, if you're mad, fine, but keep a sock in it and think about voting as your expression, as opposed to just, you know, throwing the proverbial beer can at the TV or a fiber extinguisher at some cop's head. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, we've got too much venting and not enough voting.
2: Yeah, Jim we're up against a hard break so we gotta leave it right there but uh, thank you very much for being on the program and we'll be right back
4: thank you all along the, kept the view, while all the women came and went, servants too
0: The podcast of the show at danproffshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proff Show. I want to wrap up this hour uh, talking about a news story. This is coming from the Washington Times based on an interview that was published uh, in the MIT Technology Review, an interview with uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates uh, is telling us that everybody in the so-called rich countries, that would include us, should transition to 100% synthetic beef in order to significantly curb the greenhouse gas emissions driving Climate change. So this kind of goes back to the original version of the Green New Deal, which Alexandria Ocasio Cortez uh, posted, then claimed it was she was hacked and backed away from it. Kill all the cows. Kill all the cows was one of the planks in the Green New Deal platform, and this is being resurrected by Bill Gates. He's saying that all of us in the in the so-called rich countries should stop eating meat. And instead, start eating these these substances that 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 um, that are now being produced in 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 the lab, and and supposedly this is going to help the climate by reducing carbon dioxide emissions. And and the carbon dioxide emissions come when the cows uh, chew their cud, et cetera that results in in the release of of a certain amount of methane i believe into the uh, into the atmosphere. Now one thing i don't know is what about pigs? I mean, you know and, and sheep, uh, you know do 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 pigs uh not uh create some of the same um uh, problems as as cows? I mean, are we going to be asked to give up uh, bacon and, and and pork chops uh and, and lamb uh, and and so forth, along with uh, hamburgers steaks <laughs> and uh, roasts I, you know I, I think we we in this whole climate thing we have just drifted off into never never land. I mean we are not going to stop eating meat. We would be crazy to do that. Bill Gates, I can guarantee you, Bill Gates is not going to stop eating meat, and of course he says all those people in the. Eighty percent or whatever of the globe that 's developing, not rich, they get to keep eating meat you know it 's just us that he wants to be forced to uh, eat a labrador laboratory produced uh, substitutes for actual actual meat. Uh, I could tell you right now that is not going to happen Bill Gates isn 't going to do it you 're not going to do it i 'm not going to do it. And what it really illustrates is just how these people when they talk about the climate which by the way is not doing what the modelers promised us it was going to do the models have proved to be wrong the the earth is not is not heating as the models uh, predicted but you know, we've got to the point where where the craziest things are being proposed as alleged remedies for this non-existent problem in my opinion of of uh, of global warming And the ultimate remedy, of course, is to get rid of all of us people. Every time you breathe, you exhale uh, carbon dioxide. And, of course, we're the ones that eat the meat and drive the cars and so on. And sometimes I get the feeling that what these people would really like to do is get rid of us. Because when you get right down to it, we are the alleged problem. We will be back with more uh, in the next hour of the Dan Proft Show.
0: This is The Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderacher from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Paul Kenger professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania, contributor to the American Spectre, and author of the, uh, the new book, uh, The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. Paul, welcome to the program.
5: Yeah, thanks, John. Good to be with you. i
2: got to tell you, Paul, that book sounds like what I'd like to read.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not exactly a pleasure read, you know what I mean? Pretty, uh, pretty, pretty depressing stuff. But you know that's that's the state of where we are. Sadly, today it's um, I, it's hard to believe that that in the year 2021 you would have people supporting Marxism or at least saying positive things about it. But you know, fortunately, that's where we are.
2: It's unbelievable. Uh, so yeah. where can people get the book, uh, The Devil and Karl Marx?
5: Oh, uh... uh, we we'll just go to yeah, go to Amazon.com. Um, go to. That's good enough if you want to. By the way, I should note this is kind of new news that the the book advertisements for the book were banned by Facebook. What? <laughs> so, yes, yes. So yeah, how, how's that, right? Um, yeah, that's that. That's the kind of um, again crazy world that we're in today. And it's a in fact. I wrote a I wrote a piece on it for Crisis Magazine. You can Google it. It's called "The Devil and Facebook." <laughs> It's unbelievable.
2: And, I assume that got is. reversed. I mean, they couldn't possibly stick to that. I
5: know. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. But I'll, I'll, let, I'll let people read that article if they want to learn more. But that, that's where we are with big tech censorship. It's, it's out of control.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I could talk about that, Paul, for a long time.
5: Mm-hmm. I've actually
2: been involved here in, in my state of Minnesota drafting legislation to try to address it uh, that's going to be introduced in the Minnesota Legislature here sometime in the Good. next in the oh next you need few to days. you and
5: need to yeah 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 I mean yes. nothing's happening at the federal it.
2: level and there's a lot and of I action, know it's a though. private
5: and I know it's a private company right and everybody says especially conservatives right conservatives libertarians it's a it's a private company they could do whatever they want but but there are certain basic um, standards of decency and fairness in the public square um, you know that has to do with um, with with bias with discrimination right. against people for certain right. viewpoints. Our and, our, and, our statute,
2: yeah. Paul, to your point, our statute uh bans discrimination on the basis of race, uh religion, sex, right. or political orientation.
5: Yeah, and, 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 so and, it's a, it's and probably a, sexual orientation is probably part of it, right? You know, the whole LGBTQ I don't know if that's true of your legislation, but but that's been going on across the board. And so to suddenly exempt the category of viewpoint or political discrimination. But that's that's exactly what they're engaging in, and no, that's exactly um, right. So I, I think this is near a, monopoly. I, think,
2: I don't think this is the only state-based approach, but it's but it's one approach that I'm absolutely right. confident, uh, you know, will withstand scrutiny, and I think could be effective. So I hope other states mm-hmm. follow suit. So sure. I want to move on, sure. Paul, and talk about a, a piece that you've got at the Spectator. Uh, well, I, I like the headline, Warping the Credit for Trump's Operation Warp Speed. You know, we've just lived through a really extraordinary event here, a series of events in which this vaccine or these vaccines have been brought to market uh, in record time and millions of people are being vaccinated. Talk about that. This is really extraordinary.
5: Yeah, yeah, thanks. Well, it, I go through in this piece, John, that by comparison, the history of the polio vaccine. And, you know, the polio vaccine, which was Dr. Jonas Salk, University of Pittsburgh, my alma mater, and you know, he, he announced his polio vaccine in April 1955. And, in fact, I should note, there was another vaccine that came after that by Albert Sabin in 1961. But I go through in this article how the federal government's efforts to fund a polio vaccine started way back in January 1938 under Basil O'Connor, who who was a, an aide to, to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And you can go back even further, back to 1935, there were actually two, two polio vaccines that were announced by two separate research teams, and that was done by the American Public Health Association. Both of those had problems with the clinical trials. They didn't work. So in January 1938, FDR started pouring money into this effort, which in the case of the Salk vaccine wasn't produced for 17 years after that the Sabin vaccine not for 23 years and here comes Donald Trump and he pours money into this yeah, I got to stop you th- I have to
2: stop you there for just a moment Paul because I'm old enough that I remember these events I, there were kids mm-hmm. in my neighborhood who got polio and yeah, polio. Wow, polio right? polio yeah yeah, polio. It was no COVID nineteen. This was a scary disease. You know, this could it was, cripple yes. this this could cripple children for life. I mean this was a terrible, terrible, terrible disease. And and um and when they the called when it the infantile
5: soccer, paralysis, right? right? Remember that? Yeah, but, yeah, that's exactly yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and and when that when that first vaccine came along, the the sock vaccine, uh, you know, I got it. I mean, everybody got it. I mean, it was it was a real lifesaver. And as you say, it was it was, you know, years if not decades, in the making. And that's that's really what the history of vaccines has has mostly been. I mean, I I could be wrong about this, Paul, but I believe that the the prior record before before now was the Ebola vaccine. Is that right? And, mm.
5: That's a good question. Yeah, I I, I thought of looking that up to see if I could pin that down. I actually studied virology as an undergraduate. I was a pre-med major at the University of Pittsburgh, and I I actually worked in medicine for four years. So I was very familiar with the the Salk vaccine. Um, And I had that exact question, John. I thought, you know, what is the record for the quickest vaccine that's been developed? And I'm not sure what it is, but surely they've broken it. Yeah. Oh, there's they, no they, doubt.
2: But my understanding is that, is that Ebola holds the, held the record at five years. Wow. You, you know, wow. We, we could Google that. We could look it up. But that's my understanding. And, and, and what is, this? That was this? This was
5: maybe go from about March, right? Maybe March, maybe April of last year, till like November. And by the way, we should note, you know, the, the first Monday after the election, <laughs> right? That's when it was announced. You know, it wasn't announced the Monday before the election on Tuesday, right? It was the Monday after the Tuesday of the vote. So so you're looking at that would have been November, that's the eleventh month of the year. This was maybe eight months at the most. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's the most impressive thing. And if you go back, I mean, this was ridiculed by all the naysayers. Um, I wrote a piece for American Spectator back around April, I think, and it was my first piece on Operation Warp Speed. Maybe maybe it was even May or June. And I remember quoting um, somebody from MSNBC who was talking about, oh, this will take too long, we shouldn't even try this, right? I'm like, you know, what do you want to call this, Operation Take Your Damn Time, right? I, I mean, we got, <laughs> we got this big crisis going on here, but but, but but Donald Trump poured all this money into it, and I quote in this piece, The American Spectator, and I don't need to, I mean, remember that that second debate with Joe Biden, and I, who was the moderator? Kristen Welker, right? And, and this was October 22nd. And she asked President Trump, national television, if he could guarantee that there would be a COVID vaccine within the coming weeks. And, and this is the exact quote from Trump. Quote, I can't guarantee that, but it will be by the end of the year, unquote, which <laughs> is basically a guarantee, right? Uh, he he right. said it will be distributed very quickly. And he pointed to the progress of Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and Pfizer. He said they're all doing very well. And then Biden responded to to that by saying, quote, Trump has no clear plan. There's a, quote, dark winter ahead. And here's the exact quote. He has no clear plan. And there's no prospect that there's going to be a vaccine available for the majority of the American people before the middle of next year. That was Joe Biden, John. And within eight weeks of him saying that, he was rolling up his sleeves in Wilmington, Delaware, getting his first dose of vaccine before the year was out, before the year was out. So, So, I mean, this is an amazing accomplishment by Trump, by the biomedical community. They should name this vaccine after him. They really should. And, and, and I, I think it's I think it's really sad that he's not getting the credit for it that he deserves.
2: Well, I couldn't agree more. And, and one of the things we've seen, it's not just Joe Biden that didn't want to give him credit and, and still doesn't, by the way. You know, Joe Biden is still pretending that, oh, my gosh, I stepped into the middle of this. There was no plan. Nobody was being vaccinated, which is, I think, a million people were vaccinated on Biden's first day in office, something like that. So, you <laughs> know, that's nonsense. I mean, but, but it's not just Joe Biden. I mean, I, I think that across the, the news media uh, that Donald Trump has not gotten anywhere near the credit he deserves for this achievement.
5: Just how malicious is this that 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 virus in 2020 basically torpedoed uh, Donald Trump's re-election campaign it, it, it got Joe Biden elected and now of all things it, liberals are going to begrudge Donald Trump credit for it
2: we're talking to Paul uh, Paul K- uh, Kanger and uh, we got to run to a break but we will be right back with more with Paul after these messages
0: Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with uh, Paul Kenger, professor of political science at Grove City College, and author of the brand new book, The Devil. And Karl Marx, Paul. I want to move on to a new topic now. Uh, it's also really interesting to to talk about in light of recent events. And this is a piece that you've got in the in the Spectator, the headline of which is "Impeach FDR." <laughs> Tell us, Paul, what that's all
5: about. <laughs> yeah. So, it, so it is partly tongue in cheek, right? But, but, but you know, I'm I'm taking the Democrats seriously here when when they say that a former president can be impeached and. As somebody who, who's taught political science for almost 25 years, uh, who you know every, every fall semester you know, we, we, we read through the Constitution, and I always thought that impeachment was, was a formal process. Aimed at removing a president. I think right? that's really uh,
2: clear, Paul. I got to tell you, you know, I understand people make certain arguments. I, I get them, but to me, it's it's really obvious if you just read the provisions of Article One and Article Two. Impeachment is a process whereby you remove somebody from office. I mean, that's right? Really yeah, yeah. Basic. For
5: for for a sitting president and people taking notes. It's Article Two, Section Four of the Constitution. So that talks about a president and impeachment, and Article One, Section Three of the constitution. And now it does say this in article 1 section 3, okay? When the President of the United States is tried, the chief justice shall preside. No person shall be convicted. Judgment and cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office. Now it now the the line does continue. it, it says and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust or profit under the United States. Now, that disqualification part, now, I would still hear, say, John, it clearly applies to somebody who is in office, all right? Somebody who is in office, Paul,
2: It doesn't say or, it says and. And, and right. when I it's read okay, that, yeah, together yeah, with yeah. the other provisions, together with what it says point. in Article 2, I read that to say impeachment is how you get somebody out of office, and in addition, the Senate right. can disqualify them from future office. But but yeah, that's I a great think point. The, I think the natural reading of these clauses together is that the whole point, the whole concept of impeachment is you're kicking somebody out of office.
5: That's right. However, that's, that's,
2: right, not, what the, that's not what the Democrats say. And let's get, so let's get back to your impeach, impeach FDR. Yeah. If you take that seriously, well, that's got some implications.
5: That's exactly right. Yeah, and and that's the whole point. So if, if we're dealing, if we can deal with a president that's no longer in office, and a lot of these people that were supporting a second impeachment of Donald Trump, right, said this was for purpose of censure, of you know disapproval, you know rejection of his misconduct in office. And I'm saying here, well, you know, it, 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 it's pretty hard to find a more gross abuse of power than Executive Order Nine Zero Six Six. Which, which was FDR's executive order. By the way, let me say this before I add what it was for. John, FDR did – are you guys ready for this? People, grab your pens, okay? FDR signed how many executive orders as president? Are you ready? 3,721. <laughs> 3,721. 3, oh, wow. All right, your imperial president, Donald Trump, signed 220. All right, so FDR blew away everybody – OK, in presidential history on, it, and, and liberals consider him the greatest president of the 20th century, one of the greatest presidents of all time. Among these ,3721 FDR executive orders was executive order 9066. And that's the one that placed 120,000 Japanese Americans in the internment camps. And you know th- this would be the ki- this is the kind of thing that if a Republican president had done something like that, I, that Republican president would forever live in infamy, would be forever rated the worst president of all time. Liberals would probably scream so much about it that they would have probably by now succeeded in banishing the Republican Party from
1: politics,
5: of all things, right? Um, but, but FDR has gotten away with the internment of the Japanese because, because liberals like FDR. And, and I'll say one more thing here, too, about this. This is another fascinating statistic. Every elected Republican president since Eisenhower, all right, every single elected Republican president since Eisenhower, use the word elected because Gerald Ford is the one exception, um, all of them had articles of impeachment introduced against them by Democrats. So this is what Democrats do. They impeach, impeach, and impeach. And they're now at the point where they not only – impeach you or try to impeach you while you're in office as a Republican, they will get you when you're out of office. And, 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 and listen here now, John, don't be surprised if in 2022, they try to impeach Donald Trump again. If in 2023, they try to impeach him again. In 2024, they try to impeach him again. They, they've totally abused this process. They've completely politicized it and weaponized it. And it's um, it's egregious. It's really shameless.
2: You know, Paul, during the Middle Ages, there were a lot of heresy prosecutions and death did not necessarily necessarily extinguish your liability for being found a heretic. So occasionally Mm -hmm. a deceased person would be would be prosecuted for heresy. And if he was convicted, his body would be dug up and his remains would be burned at the stake. And I've often thought <laughs> about that. I, I, I think that's kind of what the Democrats are doing with with Donald Trump and this whole concept of impeaching <laughs> the president. And in an FDR's case, of course, a president who's long, long since dead. I mean, it's the same kind of mania. You know, he's out of office. You know, what more do you want? But that's not enough. You know, it's not enough. No, it's like and, it's like and, digging and up, for, it's like and, digging up the body and burning it at the stake. You know, there's they're right. never satisfied.
5: <laughs> yeah, and, and and for liberals listening right now, saying. Oh, the Constitution, it, it doesn't it, – you're, you're talking about a deceased president. It doesn't mention a deceased president. Also, okay, it doesn't mention a former president either. So don't give me that jive, okay? The Constitution talks about a sitting president, a current serving president. By the way, this is why Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats immediately impeached Donald Trump because they wanted to try to do it before he left office, okay? And they right. they did it even before their buddies at the New York Times and the Washington Post printed timelines as to whether or not uh, the people on January 6 started assaulting the Capitol building before Donald Trump finished his speech. Right? right. Um, you know there have been you know, there there have been a whole bunch of reports now by I, I mean you name it New York Times Washington Post uh, NPR. FBI, you name it. That the January 6th Capitol attack was pre-planned. It was pre-planned, and if it, and if it was pre-planned, then you can't blame what Donald Trump said on January 6th for instigating what happened. So these are the kind of things that you would pause and reflect and investigate on before you serve before you do impeachment. But Nancy and the Democrats, they had to vote on impeachment right away because Trump was still in office. Yeah, they, do, the they do, the clock right. was ticking.
2: They do, the clock they were was impli- ticking. They're implicitly 12/12. acknowledging that, that that's the purpose of uh, of the impeachment process. We have been talking with Paul Kangor. Paul, thanks so much for being on the program. Uh, great stuff. By the way, last comment. Thanks, you, you know, impeaching Barack Obama would not be quite as much a moot point as impeaching FDR. That's one to file away or, or for Clinton. future. Or, or Hillary Tomola Clinton. Harris. That's right, worth right. filing away for, for future reference. We've got to run to a sure. break, and we'll be back with more on the Dan Proft Show. I just want to your love
0: tonight. Oh, I don't want to lose your love tonight. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Poff Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. One of the topics that has been foremost in the minds of conservatives over the last oh year, I would say, especially, is freedom of speech. And the way in which uh, our free speech uh, rights are being uh, eaten away at by a combination of the cancel culture that is coming from the left Increasing intolerance uh, across the board that's coming from the left, but above all, the the liberal-aligned uh, social media platforms that have that have cramp, uh, cramped down on on conservative speech while at the same time allowing free reign to to the left. And we've seen this all over. We've seen it on on Facebook. Or Earlier in this program, we were talking with an author who wrote a book titled uh, Karl Marx and the Devil, talking about the evils of communism, and ads for that book, ads promoting that book, were banned by Facebook. It's unbelievable. Uh, we've seen the same thing on Twitter. Uh, we've seen the same thing on YouTube. A, a great example is the way in which YouTube has, has deleted and banned all discussion of the coronavirus that doesn't toe... Whatever at that moment is the government line. The government line shifts, as we all know, has shifted several times on various issues. But whatever it is, uh, YouTube uh, won't allow you to deviate from the the government line. And that's particularly damaging in a situation where we don't know much. You know, COVID-19, it was a new virus. We knew very, very little about it. And, of course, that's precisely the situation where you don't want to lock in dogma where you don't want to anoint something as the party line and not allow discussion, not allow dissent and debate, because that's where you really can go awry. When when you really don't know a lot of facts, that's when you need to have the most robust and the most vigorous public discussion. And instead of promoting that, it was actually shut down by the very social media platforms that ostensibly are are devoted to speech and that have, in fact, become in today's world – the main venues in which most people express themselves on on the issues of the day. So it's a huge, huge problem that those uh, social media platforms, I think without exception, are discriminating against conservatives. I'm no longer on Twitter, for example, a relatively relatively minor example, but it's one of many. Uh, the liberals would say, well, if you, don't like, uh, if you don't like our our social media platform, start your own. And so some people started Parler. And what happened? Uh, their app was yanked by Google and Apple, and then their server access was cut off by Amazon. They were driven right out of business by what would appear to be a conspiracy and combination and restraint of trade and violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Act. I'd, I'd love to represent Parler in that lawsuit. And so what to do? And, and I think the answer is pretty clear. There, there's not going to be anything done at the federal level. We're not going to have uh, amendments to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and so forth because the Democrats won't do it. You know, they like having conservative speech suppressed. It's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. What we can do and and what we are doing in a number of states is to take action at the state level. And this is what I think can be really effective. If we get 10 or 15 States that are controlled by conservatives, and there are something like thirty states that at least nominally are controlled by conservatives and If they pass good solid well crafted legislation that that strikes back against this discrimination, uh, I think we can win this one and Here in Minnesota, where I live i've been involved in 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 uh, in drafting and promoting legislation that is going to be introduced in the Minnesota legislature any any minute now any 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 day now. Uh, and that legislation is couched in terms of anti-discrimination. What it does is to ban social media platforms, as we have a technical definition there, from discriminating against users on the basis of race, sex, religion, or political orientation. And there are statutory damages, so if there's a violation, you can automatically recover $50,000 plus attorney's fees, as well as the potential for, uh, for injunctive relief. And that's one approach. There are some other approaches that other states are trying, but I personally think the anti-discrimination theme is is the one that is probably going to be the most effective, probably going to work the best, and certainly is going to stand up to whatever legal or constitutional scrutiny uh, might be brought to bear. But I think this is, this is one area where there are some really positive developments. I've been talking to people in a number of states uh, – Uh, Legislators and activists, law professors have been passing around proposed legislation. And I think that before this year's legislative sessions come to end uh, in the the 50 states, I think we're going to see legislation adopted in a number of states that is intended to, and I hope effectively will, fight back against the uh, big tech censorship of conservative ideas. We're gonna to go to a break and we'll be right back after these messages. Boy.
0: Boy. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. You know, there are certain evergreen uh, chestnuts, to I guess mix a metaphor, that keep popping up over and over again. And, and it seems like they just, they're terrible ideas that, that somehow just can't be stopped. And an example of that is uh, rent control. Uh, it's been conclusively demonstrated both through academic analysis and through experience, most importantly, that rent control is a terrible, terrible idea, and yet uh, it always uh, keeps coming back from the dead, and it has a certain intrinsic uh, popularity, I guess, if you're one of the people uh, uh, who's benefiting from that particular form of price-fixing. Price-fixing is is basically always a bad idea. When when multiple companies get together to fix prices, that's a crime when they get prosecuted. When the government fixes prices, that's frequently a popular element of a political party's platform. And that's true of rent control. Another area where it's true is uh, a minimum wage. And, and you can survey the academic literature, and, and I think the verdict is very, very clear. Uh, labor is like every other commodity. Uh, if, you, if you increase the price, you reduce the demand. That's the, You learn that in the most basic economics class you could ever take. And again, it's borne out by experience. Uh, And and uh, nevertheless, uh, there's always a a political appeal uh, to increasing the minimum wage because people always uh, just think of it in terms of, oh, well, certain people will make more money. That's great. And they don't think about the the negative consequences. And so we have currently a proposal to raise the federal minimum wage. And this is particularly bad because it's the federal minimum wage, which means it's going to apply everywhere. And uh, there are some urban areas where a $15 minimum wage is well, you know, it's less than anybody's actually getting paid. There are some rural areas where a $15 minimum wage is pretty darn good money. And so this is not a situation where we should have one size fits all, and nevertheless, there are serious proposals right now to uh, to raise the uh, federal minimum wage dramatically all the way to 15 dollars an hour. I'm not surprised to see this coming from the Democrats. But I was surprised to learn that my friend Tom Cotton has joined with Mitt Romney to uh, offer a proposal that includes increasing the minimum wage, federal wage, to $15 an hour, which, of course, to the employer is going to translate after the additional costs are added into something that may be closer to $20 an hour. But along with that, the Cotton-Romney proposal includes uh, employer, real meaningful employer enforcement of immigration laws. And so it's kind of a twofer if you are a relatively low-skilled American worker. Uh, you both get protected from unfair competition from illegal immigrants. And at the same time, uh, you, you, if you're lucky enough to still have a job, uh, you, you can benefit from a $15 minimum wage. The problem, of course, is that there are many people who are not worth $15 or $20 uh, to an employer. They simply can't confer that much value or alternatively. Maybe they can confer that much value, but at some point uh, it makes more economic sense to replace them with, for example, a kiosk in a fast food restaurant rather than an employee. And we're seeing that, of course, uh, all around us. And so the inevitable impact, if you you raise the minimum wage to a level above what really is entry-level wage anyway in a particular area, you start unemploying people. Uh, you start uh, having people who can't find jobs. You, you start having people getting laid off. You start having people getting their hours cut back. These things are the inevitable consequence. If you, if you have a minimum wage that is higher than the actual uh, market-determined um, starting wage for unskilled labor in a particular place. And, and on this point, Jason Riley has a really interesting piece in yesterday's Wall Street Journal where he talks about uh, who is it? Uh, who is actually uh, getting paid the minimum wage. And I think when people talk about this, they, um, they assume that what we're talking about is helping poor people, people who make very, very little money. But actually, if you look at the numbers, that isn't true. Well, first of all, uh, Jason Riley points out that a new Congressional Budget Office report estimates that if this $15 minimum wage were put into effect – Uh, about 1.4 million jobs would disappear. And how many more in addition to that would just not get hired, Uh, nobody knows. But we're talking about unemploying vast, vast numbers of people. And Jason Riley talks about an analysis by two economists, Joe Sabia and Richard Burkhauser, who found that the vast majority of workers who would theoretically benefit from a minimum wage increase live in households that are not poor. And and according to their research, only 13% of workers who would be affected live in poor households, while nearly two-thirds live in households with incomes over twice the poverty line. And over 40% live in households with incomes over three times the poverty line. And well, why is this? Well, the answer is there are very, very, very few people... Who are supporting a family on a minimum wage job I mean that is that is very, very rare. most people you know are sensible enough not to try to do that and so so for example, according to this the same economic research, single mothers make up less than five percent of those who theoretically could could benefit from this uh, increase in the minimum wage to uh, fifteen dollars an hour. So who are the people who work for minimum wage well they 're the ones that you see at your neighborhood dairy queen you know they 're they're basically teenagers uh, who, are, who are making a little money and getting a foot into the labor force and retired people uh, who are just making a little extra money uh, in, in retirement. That's mostly who works in entry-level uh, minimum wage jobs. And one of the terrible things about about raising the minimum wage substantially, as, as this legislation would do, and, and, and condemning a lot of those people, not all, but a lot of those people to unemployment is that you make it much more difficult for for people to get that first uh, to to get on that first rung on the job ladder a lot of people learn valuable lessons about making sure your alarm clock goes off about getting to work on time about you know how to serve customers and be a good employee how to be reliable and dependable and uh... where people learn those lessons that 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 serve them well throughout their working careers many many people learn those life lessons uh, in their first jobs working uh, part-time for minimum wage. And and especially young people who do come from less well-off households desperately need to learn those lessons, need to acquire those very basic job skills that can make a person employable for many years to come. And and if we raise significantly the minimum wage, as these people are talking about doing, we're going to be pulling up the ladder on untold thousands of people who need that description.
0: Of the show at danprofshow.com
2: Welcome back. I'm John Hinderacker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. Uh, in this short segment, I want to talk about a news story that 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 I find uh, kind of heartwarming. You know, we're in the midst of cancel culture. Everybody on the right uh, not only gets attacked, but but liberals will try to put them out of business. They'll, they'll they'll try to get them fired. They'll try to prevent them from from getting a new job. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it's really sinister. And, and nobody has really fought back against that on the right. And it, here's a headline from Town Hall, uh, co- an item by uh, Beth Bauman that I, that I like. It's not like cancel culture. Uh, this is actually totally on the up and up. But here's the headline Ammo Company Tells Biden Supporters to Pound Sand. And what's going on here is that there is a small manufacturer of ammunition. It's called uh, Phoenix Ammunition, and if you go to their website to order ammo, you are greeted by a welcome screen, and the welcome screen has their name, Phoenix Ammunition, uh, with the sort of you know the bullseye you know over the over the O in ammunition, and it says, "Welcome. Did you vote for Joe Biden? Click No or Yes. And if you click No." You can proceed and uh, place an order for ammunition. If you click yes, you will be redirected to a web page that lays out Joe Biden's gun control and gun confiscation plans. And uh, and so basically, this this small company is is telling customers that uh, if you if you are trying to ban us, if you're trying to drive us out of business by supporting Joe Biden. Uh, we'd rather you take your business someplace else. And, and if you don't understand that supporting Joe Biden means uh, an erosion of, at best, an erosion of Second Amendment rights, we're sending you to a webpage where you can see what he's got in mind for the uh, firearms owners of America. And uh, the Phoenix Ammunition Company followed up with some tweets And they say, we've had a few potential customers call this morning to ask why they have to check a box, stating they did not vote for Joe Biden in order to purchase our ammunition. And they they continue in a series of tweets. First question, are we serious? Yes, we are serious. Joe Biden ran on a campaign built on the most radical gun control platform a major party candidate has ever had, including banning the online sale of ammunition, essentially a plan to bankrupt our company. And then they tweet, second question, couldn't I have voted for him for other reasons? Answer, sure, that's possible. But if you did, you should immediately sell any firearms you own out of solidarity. And then finally, third question, are you really willing to walk away from a paying customer simply because he voted for Joe Biden? Answer, yes. Yes, we are. We're dead serious. So, so there's kind of a fun example of a, of a small business uh, that would be doomed if, if Joe Biden got his, got his way legislatively. And uh, they are, they are uh, fighting back and standing up for their right uh, to conduct their business. Uh, that'll do it for this hour. And we'll be back with more after this. Week.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Charles Lipson, professor emeritus of political science at the University of Chicago and a regular commentator at Real Clear Politics and other sites. Charles, thanks for being on the program.
1: What a pleasure, John.
2: Charles, in this segment, I want to talk about a piece that you've got uh, at the uh, Spectator uh, US. And it's about education, the sad state of education in America. The, the headline is Chasing Chaucer and Beowulf Out of the Curriculum. What, what's that all about?
1: Well, the fact is that everywhere, K-12 and universities, there's a kind of rigid political correctness. It's gone beyond the political correctness that we've seen for a couple of decades, and it's literally chasing out all the classics. For example, including Shakespeare is now considered an element of white supremacy. This goes everywhere, but... uh, it's, it's just striking when you see the exclusion of the classics of Western literature. And this all began with a, uh, this particular uh, idea of kicking uh, Chaucer. And Beowulf, out of the curriculum, began with an English university. But it, it is replicated in many, many ways all across our universities and increasingly in our high schools.
2: Well, let's talk a little bit about 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 some of the specifics. I think our listeners are aware of that trend, although they may, may not realize how appalling it, it really is. But would um, you Chaucer? You know, I read Chaucer when I was in college in, in the original Middle English. You know, it's wonderful, wonderful literature. It's one of the one of the building blocks of the English language and of English culture. Uh, what's wrong with Chaucer?
1: Nothing, <laughs> except that a white male guy wrote it. And there are uh, what economists call opportunity costs. If you So you can attack Shakespeare or Chaucer or whatever on two grounds. One is they're bad in their own right, and usually that's because uh, they uh, have the wrong DNA. They were white or they were male or they were heterosexual or whatever it might be. And then the other is that we need to have more space or other uh, writers uh, of, who are uh, Hispanic, or uh, they're a female, or they're uh, uh, explicitly uh, uh, gay, or whatever it might be. And I personally am, am delighted to see an English curriculum that includes all kinds of voices, as long as the core curriculum is focused on best work, uh, the Chaucer's, uh, the Shakespeare's, uh, the uh, Jane Austen's, uh, the George Eliot's and, and uh, Virginia Woolf's, whatever you think are uh, the best that has been thought and said in our history, uh, which is the way that a great 19th century uh, thinker uh, Matthew Arnold once put it: "You couldn't even say that today on a college campus."
2: No, you certainly couldn't. I, I, I have this kind of morbid fascination, though, Charles, with with the argument on the other side. How about Beowulf? Now, Beowulf is not one of my favorites. I suppose a liberal could say it's you know, pro violence or or something. What's the What's the knock on Beowulf?
1: Well, I'm with you. I never all, uh, liked it all that much. Let me say something about Beowulf. Beowulf is, is unreadable uh, for us uh, mortals who don't uh, know Old English. You can read Chaucer, and with a little help, you can understand uh, it. In the, uh, you need a little more help than you would need for Shakespeare. But uh, Beowulf is actually uh, much closer to a German uh, language from which English sprung. I mean, it's a direct uh, antecedent. But um, uh, the the most interesting thing I know about Beowulf, I don't know if you know this, uh, John. Uh, I didn't know it for a long time either. It um, for a long time we only had eight lines of the whole poem and it had basically nothing else from medieval uh, England. And then one copy was discovered. And that's all we have, is one single copy.
2: Yeah, and that copy got rescued from a fire, I believe, too.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, it was. In the 1600s, I believe, uh, one English household, you know, noble household, had in its library uh, a copy of the whole poem, and that's why we have it. But I think best way to think of this is that we're erasing all of our traditions and to the extent that we keep them, we keep them as negative examples. So, in a way, it's of a piece with taking George Washington's and Abraham Lincoln's name off of the schools in San Francisco.
2: Yeah, these things obviously are driven by the same kind of impulse. You know, I wrote a post last night about this this effort to drive Shakespeare out of the public schools And I quoted uh, some teacher somewhere who who was saying that Romeo and Juliet exhibits toxic masculinity. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, given that Romeo and Juliet both took poison, I suppose the word toxic is not entirely out of place. But seriously, I mean, anybody who's ever seen or read Romeo and Juliet, toxic masculinity, are you kidding me?
1: It's just dreadful. I I would also say that for 20 years or so, Uh, I have noticed uh, among really brilliant students who are at elite universities uh, a near total lack of shared cultural background of high culture. Uh, That is, they all can, you know, quote from uh, Homer, meaning the Simpsons, but not from Homer, meaning the poet. And things that Uh, A previous generation had, which is a kind of deep-in-your-bones knowledge of the King James language, the language of the King James Version of the Bible, uh, and and the English Book of Common Prayer, which many people may not know, but their language reflects it. Uh, The same is true for Shakespeare. The the same is true for, for Americans, for Mark Twain. If and of course, Huckleberry Finn, which is one of the greatest novels in American history, is now just completely prohibited because of the N word, uh, as if Twain himself wasn't a great uh, anti-racist. So there, there is something beyond the loss of um, <clears throat> reading great works and even. Uh, understanding our tradition. And that is that as part of a common culture, we need to have a kind of common cultural background. And we're losing that. And we're losing it deliberately as a political strategy.
2: No, I think you're right about that, Charles. One more thing. I'm curious about your opinion on this. Some of this is obviously politically driven. It's anti-American, it's anti-Western culture. But I think there's another factor. I think that many teachers nowadays frankly lack the intelligence and lack the cultural awareness to uh, appreciate or even frankly be able to read Shakespeare and Chaucer. What, what do you think about that? We have all these graduates of education programs you know, teaching in the public schools. I think that a lot of teachers are just not up to that task.
1: Well, we have uh, an embarrassing example Uh, of that, which is Andrea Mitchell, who when uh, Ted Cruz quoted uh, uh, in the aftermath of the uh, impeachment said that the trial in the Senate was a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's a quote from Shakespeare. She said uh, that Ted Cruz was wrong in saying it came from Shakespeare. It came from uh, William Faulkner, she said, because William Faulkner had a novel uh, entitled The Sound and the Fury. But what is so embarrassing about that is that Andrea Mitchell was an English major in
2: college. And anybody who knows anything about Faulkner knows that the point of that, he didn't just randomly take a phrase from Shakespeare. The lion from Shakespeare's, Life is a tale told by an told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And the point of using that quote was that the first section of The Sound and the Fury is told by a guy who's referred to in the book as an idiot a guy who is mentally deficient. And, and the art of that section of the book is that Benji doesn't understand a lot of the things that he sees, but the reader does. The reader can interpret what he describes and understand it, even though Benji doesn't. So that Shakespeare quote is really vital to The Sound and the Fury. It's not random. And that's the kind of thing that you would learn as a freshman in any English yeah. class.
1: Uh, how, many gra- how many graduates of our best high schools could grasp that?
2: Hey, Charles, we're not going to get the hard break, Charles. So, we're going to have to run yeah. to some commercials yeah. here, but we will be right back after these oh, no, interviews.
0: Oh, Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We are talking with Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago. And Charles, before the break, we were talking about this movement that we see in the public schools. We see it in the universities. We also also see it in the uh, K through twelve uh, schools. This movement to drive out of the curriculum really the cornerstones of of American and Western uh, culture. We're talking about. Uh, Chaucer. We're talking about Shakespeare. We're talking about, you know, Mark Twain. And um, and to some extent, what's going on here seems to me to be really an attempt at a, a kind of a cultural suicide. Does that make sense?
1: It does. Uh, it's a suicide of the culture that you and I value as a common culture. And we don't value it uh, as white supremacy. Uh, I know that I speak for for you and, and for our audience. I mean, this is just damning us with a, a false accusation. We want uh, an America, uh, we want a West that is uh, open to new ideas and is inclusive across races, creeds, and colors. And But we don't want in the process to have people uh, condemned for, what, for being raised in a two-parent family by loving parents. We don't want them condemned for the DNA of their ancestors. We want uh, a society of mobility and a society that appreciates the good things of our past, but that is able to critique uh, the things that aren't so good in our past.
2: You know, right before we went to the break, Charles, you were talking about the fact that um, student student enrollment in the humanities has declined drastically. And there's not very many English majors anymore. Uh, talk about that a little bit more. I, mean, I, I can easily imagine that if I were a college student, the last thing I would want to do is sit in classrooms and be lectured about, you know, Race, class, and gender, right? Uh, and if well, I that, and if I want to read Jane Austen, I'll go read Jane Austen. But I, you know, I don't need to listen to that stuff. Is that is that kind of what's going on?
1: We don't know all the reasons why uh, there's been a decline in enrollment in the humanities. If you ask the people in the humanities, they, of course, blame the students. Uh, they say that they all want to become. Uh, to go into uh, computers and, and to be investment bankers or whatever it is. But the courses in uh, the humanities have become very ideological. And beyond ideological, uh, they become very, quote, theoretical. That is, if you go into an English uh, major, you might end up reading a lot of books on theories of imperialism and everything is about race, class, gender, and post-colonialism. Well, uh, most students who want to go into English, they certainly want to hear the voices of different groups and different experiences, but they want to read uh, Jane Austen. They want to read Middlemarch, George Eliot's Middlemarch. They, they want to read Virginia Woolf. Uh, and they want to read T.S. Eliot and so forth, and they don't want everything about Mark Twain uh, to be Baudelaire's, to have the words uh, that he used uh, changed, and they don't want to—I uh, mean, Mark Twain is a great uh, way to talk about race uh, in America— but you also want to read it as a great novel.
2: Yeah, and part of what's going on here, absolutely, is the cultural suicide that we've been talking about—the the deliberate, you know, leftist indoctrination, anti-Americanism, anti-Western culture. But a lot of it's just dumbing down. I mean, it, it's it's true that it takes more effort, more intellectual commitment to read Chaucer and Shakespeare than to read a lot of the you know the stuff that's typically cranked out, you know, that that, that people are want to read. And and I think I think both uh... students but especially teachers i think there are a great many teachers in the public schools that are not up to making that effort or not up to leading their their students in making that effort and i think i think another example of that that dumbing down that i wrote about on powerline a couple of days ago is just shocking to me there's this movement in the public schools to declare that math is racist and you read that you say what on earth are they talking about and the answer is, well, the, the, the focus on finding a right answer, that is white supremacy. The, the idea of trying to solve a problem and get the right answer, that's very white.
1: Well, so this is whole, the kind of person, the person who agrees with the idea that finding the right answer is racist is not the kind of person I want building a bridge across the Mississippi River.
2: I mean, it's incredible to me, and it's all, that but that I idea.
1: That I think underlying this, besides the sheer craziness, there the problem here is that when you move and uh, the uh, Department of Justice, is probably going back to this, this was the way Eric Holder looked at it. If you found that more, uh, let's say, African American children were being disciplined for bad behavior in a school than white children, let's say, or Asian children, then that was by definition racist, right, because it was unequal outcomes. And so a lot of what you have is people looking at outcomes that look different between different groups. First of all, one of the worst things that has happened in American politics is that nobody is an individual anymore. They're only a member of a group. You're gay or you're this, you know, or you're a Jew or you're uh, uh, Hispanic, um, whatever it is. And I like pride in the groups, but I don't like the idea that it removes from us all of our individual characteristics. And then once you say that a particular group is uh, – is underrepresented there are no black uh uh field goal kickers in the nfl then that must be racist and uh that's where you have a problem and you do have a problem in the number of blacks who are succeeding in the sciences and that needs to be addressed but it can't be addressed by saying oh that's because the science is Uh, as a rigorous subject. Well, if you
2: want... Charles, if you want to ensure that black students continue to underperform in the sciences, there's no better way to guarantee that than by telling them from elementary school, don't worry about getting the right answer. Or, even worse, you're not one of the ones who are able to get the right answer. You know, so forget about
1: it. exactly right. You are exactly right. And then admit them to schools where... uh, uh, They're uh, being admitted uh, in order to even up a racial balance rather than in that particular school because they are qualified to take the organic chemistry course. That's a sure way of taking potential doctors and funneling them into urban studies. So it's it's a very serious problem, and it creates huge amounts of frustration all through the campus, all through K-12, actually.
2: Yeah, it's a huge problem. And I, I sometimes wonder if a country, frankly, can survive with an educational system as terrible as ours has become. We have been talking with Charles Lipson. Charles, thanks so much for being on the program.
1: What a pleasure. What a pleasure, John. Thank you nice day to start again
4: Come on, a nice day for a white wedding
0: Stop. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderacher from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Michael Volpe, investigative journalist and the author of Sandra grazini Rookie and the World's Last Custody Trial. Michael, thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Michael, I want to talk about the piece that you've got at uh, the American Conservative, uh, the the, uh, title of which is The Left's Immigration Plan Under Biden. And... um, and I, I believe, like, like I think most conservatives, that one of the real achievements of the uh, Trump administration was at least trying and succeeding to, I think, a considerable degree in getting a handle on illegal immigration. And uh, with Joe Biden as our new president, it, it appears that the floodgates are are just open. Totally agree. Uh, I think that Trump, probably since
6: at least Ike, uh, was the toughest on illegal immigration. And he made a lot of successes that obviously the media doesn't cover. Um, and Biden is unwinding all of them. And as I said in the piece, he's going to go farther left than even Obama because Obama, though he was generally open borders, deported more people than anyone in history. He was called deporter-in-chief by, by those who uh, would criticize him for that. And Biden wants to number one, put a, put a moratorium on deportations. And he's clearly not going to go that way, the way Obama did on deportations, but uh, basically everything is open borders. He wants to legalize the 11 million. He wants to make it as easy as possible for you to get an asylum claim. He wants to give legal and illegal immigrants as many benefits as possible. So he, he's going to go far left and he's going to be pushed far left by not only activists, but, but, uh, Congress people like AOC, uh, and others, uh, Jesus Chui Garcia from, from around here in Chicago is going to be one of those pushing him. Uh, and several of those Congress people were at this press conference that I covered, uh, for the article.
2: So, so there's a couple of things going on here, Michael. Um, when, when Joe Biden Uh, entered that that flurry of executive orders in the opening days of his administration i i haven't i i can't say i've actually read them myself but my my impression is that he more or less ordered uh, a cessation a suspension of enforcement of the immigration laws is that is that going too far or, or or is that basically right
6: it's basically right, though so it's not I, I wouldn't say every law but but certainly suspension of deportations is one. He's put out a memo which is going to significantly reduce who ICE will arrest uh the, There are things that that he can't do through executive order. He can't legalize all eleven million who that that we believe there are eleven he can't do that but so I wouldn't say he's suspended everything, but certainly. As much as possible through executive orders, he to to really do damage to the country. He's going to have to pass legislature, which I think is going to be difficult. But uh, he's done as much as possible through the executive order process.
2: Yeah, to the point where I know some people on the left were saying, hey, we abolished ICE without abolishing ICE. You know that's been mm-hmm. kind of a, a a watchword on the left, and at least some of these folks are saying, "Well, we basically achieved that that goal without actually having to pass legislation." Right? He,
6: you know what? And Obama did something similar. There's something called the Morton memo. Uh, Morton, I think, was the director of ICE at the time, uh, which put in a, a de-emphasis on certain crime uh, and who you who you hold and who you don't hold. And uh, Biden has put out his own memo, uh, which. I, it, it's not that they're going to arrest no one. They're just going to arrest next to no one. And at the press conference, there was only an activist who said defund ICE, that term. But AOC used terms like demilitarization and changing priorities. So um, I think all of them were talking about the same thing. Some of them were smart enough not to use an explosive term like defund ICE. But you are not going to see arrest of a lot of people, including drunk drivers, assaulters, and people who commit pretty significant crimes who are already in the country illegally. You're not going to see them arrested. And you're certainly not going to see them deported. And again, that is a very big difference from the way President Obama handled it. He felt if if you committed a certain crime and you were deportable, you would be deported. And that's how he got the thing is almost three million people deported under President Obama.
2: So basically, even the criminals are going to be allowed to stay uh, in the United States. Well, as, as you I, know, Michael, Article 2 of the Constitution uh, says that the, the president's job is to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. But we all know that how effectively that's done varies from president mm-hmm. to president. And and with Joe Biden, we obviously do not have a commitment to uh, enforcing the immigration laws we got to run to a break and when we return michael i want to talk about the legislative agenda that we'll be seeing from the democrats in congress and the biden administration we'll be right back after these. You the, you the, you the,
4: you the,
6: the
0: more you around. listen the more you'll know this is this, this. This is the Dan Prof Show?
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We are talking with investigative journalist Michael Volpe. And Michael, we've been talking about your piece about uh, the Biden administration and illegal immigration in the American conservative. And there was a press conference recently where a number of Democrats got together and announced their immigration agenda under the under the rubric of uh, Roadmap to Freedom Resolution. Tell our listeners a- about that. Right. The, the term you want to look for, it's called
6: immigration integration. I don't know if they used it at this particular press conference, but seeing these groups' press conference before – and what does that mean? It means cater to immigrants legal and otherwise in every way possible. So open the borders, legalize everyone who's here, but also give everyone legal and otherwise immigrants here as many benefits as possible. Uh, other things that maybe we agree with, like cutting the red tape or if you're trying to become a citizen, if you're trying to get a green card, uh, but anything that makes it easier to get here. And makes it easier on you once you're here, whether you are here legally or not. And certainly uh, one of the biggest priorities, is, and, and this he can, Biden can do without legislation, is changing that policy where people who apply for asylum who came here from, say, Honduras, have to go back to Mexico. Uh, that's going to go away. Um, that was something they talked about all the time. We don't want to criminalize asylum seekers. And And the problem with that is... It's the human traffickers who are telling these people to come here and seek asylum. And why? Because once you seek asylum, you're allowed to stay and the process can take three years, five years, 10 years. And I think the number is in the end, 85% of the claims get rejected, but in the meantime, you're already in the country. You could just disappear. And this is what they want. What they want is to make it as easy as possible for you to get here. And once you're here to cater to you, Immigrant integration. Whenever you hear that term, that's what they're talking about: is this full-fledged cater to immigrants, legal and otherwise?
2: And 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 really, as I as I read this, Michael, not making any distinction between legal immigrants and illegal immigrants. None, zero, and in
6: fact, Jayapali, I I don't remember the exact quote, but she said we need to get away from this dynamic where we trade legalization. For border security, so forget all of that. Yes, as long as you get here, we want to open up our arms. And I don't know that the stat is still uh, accurate, but I heard maybe like five or ten years ago, there are a billion, a billion people in the in the world who are poorer than the average Mexican. Well, we cannot take them all. So, if you are poorer than the average Mexican, I bet you really want to come to the U.S. But we can't have a flood of a billion people, and this is the sort of policy
2: that that brings them all in. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. Now, so the, this press conference that you write about in your piece here was was held, as I understand it, by a half dozen or so uh, Democratic members of mm-hmm. of Congress. Is, is this being turned into legislation? This this agenda. Yes, and the first piece of legislation will be will, they'll try to legalize
6: everyone who's here illegally. That's, that's the first piece of legislation that they're going to do. Uh, DACA, they certainly want to make DACA into law, but if you legalize everyone, then DACA is, is a part of that. So where they're going to start is is trying to legalize all the 11 million who are here. I don't think that's going to pass. None of the Republicans would vote for it. I, don't, I, I think between Manchin... Uh, the woman from Arizona, whose name I can't remember, Cinema, there, there are about three or four. Right, there's three or four. If any of those say no, uh, you don't have the votes. So I don't. That's the thing. His legislative agenda. We'll see how much he can get done legislatively because it's so far left. I think he'll lose at least one senator from the Democratic side for any of the things he can do. But he can do a lot executively as well.
2: So, so I think it's important too to point out, uh, Michael, that. When they talk about legalizing 11 million, nobody knows what that number is, but say 11 million right. uh, illegal immigrants currently in the country, they're also talking about a path to citizenship. And I'm guessing it's gonna, if they get their way, it's going to be a very easy uh, path to citizenship and voter status. Absolutely. That's exactly
6: what they're talking about. I think they, anywhere from seven to 10 years is the process that they've set up. But yeah, no. The legislation they want is the legalization, of are right, 11 million. We have no idea how many million it is. But everyone who is here illegally, uh, we make them legal and we give them a pathway to citizenship. Absolutely. That's what they're going for. That's, again, why I don't think it'll pass. It's so far left. I don't think you'll keep every single Democrat.
2: So in the meantime, pathway to citizenship. But In the meantime, full entitlement to all public services and all rights and privileges uh, enjoyed by Americans and enjoyed by illegal immigrants. Right. Uh, immigrant integration, that's exactly what they're
6: talking about. Cater to immigrants, legal and otherwise, every way possible. Make it as easy as possible to get here and give you as many benefits when you get here.
2: Now, the the, the immigration issue, it seems to me, Michael, is a great example of uh what we're going to see a lot more of over the next two years and then of course the deck gets reshuffled with the 2022 congressional elections but uh, as a result of the two uh, runoff uh, losses in georgia the democrats now have the slimmest possible control over the senate as well as a very narrow majority in the house of representatives and in theory uh if um if if they hold all their all their fifty senators in line and then Kamala Harris cast the deciding vote, in theory they can ju- they can get just about anything through Congress, but um, but but realistically, um, w- w- the immigration is an example of an issue they, they they can't do it by budget reconciliation, which you can do in a simple majority, so they got to bust the filibuster, right? Right, right. Yeah, they they would have to bust the filibuster. Um, yeah, look,
6: I, I agree with you, as I said twice now. I, I don't think they have the votes for a lot of the stuff they really want to do, um, but they will try. Uh, Biden, you know, what Obama promised to try to do what Biden is promising to do now, which is try to legalize the 11 million. And then he got caught up with health care and it never came back up again. Uh, but that's been a priority for a very long time. Reagan legalized a million. Now we've got at least eleven million. You legalize eleven million, we'll have a hundred million in about twenty years. who are here illegally. I mean,
2: yeah, it's a scary prospect. And basically, you know, we're counting on Joe Manchin, maybe Kristen Cinema, you know, maybe one mm-hmm. or two others, yep. you know, to have their fingers in the dike at least until twenty twenty two. Uh, and but. if not, there's some very radical stuff that could uh, could make its way uh, into law. Michael Volpe, thank you so much for being on the program. We're going to go to a break uh, now and be right back. Come on, baby. Don't feel the reaper. Baby, take my hand. Don't feel
0: the will fly. Don't feel the baby, I'm your man. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, I got the very sad news that Rush Limbaugh has, has passed away. And, and I don't think I can, I can end this program without spending just a couple of minutes talking about Rush and what he meant to me, what he meant to the, the radio industry and talk radio and what he meant to conservatives and really to the United States of America. Uh, this medium that we are we are using right now, talk radio, uh, Rush just about invented it. I mean, I we wouldn't be here doing this uh, tonight if uh, if Rush hadn't been the pioneer, if he hadn't shown the way, if he hadn't set a standard of of excellence in broadcasting uh, that the rest of us have uh, aspired to now for for many years. And it's hard, even looking back, to, to assess Russia's impact on on our country. I mean, for, for obvious reasons, he basically made talk radio, uh, which is one of the very few outlets that conservatives dominate to this day, one of the ways we really get our messages out. And we really owe that uh, to Rush just about 100%. But it's more than that. Uh, he has been for decades a voice of common sense, conservatism. He's reached millions of people, and he's, he's converted a lot of people. He's, he's made conservatives in a lot of places where there weren't conservatives before. And, and one of the ironies here, the Democrats and the liberals always like to attack Rush, and they would say he was mean, and he was vicious, and so on. And of course, as we all know who listened to Rush, that was the opposite of the truth. He was like your, your uncle. He was the friendly, nice, guy who kind of led you through the labyrinth to understand what was really going on in the political world. But there's rarely been a a figure in public life who has been nicer uh, and more positive uh, than Rush Limbaugh. He enjoyed what he did. He loved what he did. And his listeners loved him and loved listening to him. And that came through every day on his program. And, you know, Rush was never one to have a lot of guests. He'd have the president of the United States on as a guest. But that was about it. You know, and 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 what Rush, Rush wanted to talk to his listeners, and the relationship that Rush had with his listeners is really one of the most inspiring things that we've seen in in professional media, and and it's so fitting, and I'm so glad that that uh, Rush was honored a year or so ago by President Trump at the State of the Union speech, and he got the recognition, he got the credit that he so richly, richly deserved, and of course he would never have gotten from from our current president or most other presidents. So it's very sad news that Rush Limbaugh has has died today, but I think we can only be grateful uh, for the tremendous influence that he had and and for the the wonderful man that Rush uh, truly was. And so we say, uh, Rush Limbaugh, rest in peace.
0: The Dan Proft Show.